Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, what we want to do is to be able to explore your word and explore it in a way that honors you and meets the needs of people here because we've got to be practical. We've got to get up Monday morning and deal with the realities of what work is all about, what school is all about. As for many, spring break comes to an end. There will be families in the scattered state of this church that are coming back into the area today. Protect them, keep them safe, whether it be on the roads or flying in the air. But Father, whether we are scattered or gathered, we see a trajectory of this passage that pushes us forward toward that climactic Easter Sunday. Here we see the sprouting of what appears to be dead in the newness of life. And so, Father, for those that are experiencing forms of grief or grappling with the meaning of life because life seems so short, what's the purpose, what's the meaning, why put in the effort? I pray that you're going to pour your spirit upon us this morning and give us what we need at our point of need. So, Father, these moments are important. We want to drink deep from this well of wisdom, your word. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, to see Jesus and him only. And we pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the opening of the baseball season. God is so good. <laughs> Billy Graham in his book, Nearing Home, writes, The crack of the bat. The thrill of rounding bases. The satisfaction of sliding into home. In a cloud of dust. In the prelude to the book, Nearing Home, you and I are told, uh, Mr. Graham loved it all. As a young man, he dreamed that his passion for baseball would lead him to the major leagues. Quote, I often pictured myself hitting a big league grand slam into the stadium seats and hearing the crowd roar with thunder as I, I ran the bases. But the writer goes on to say, Mr. Graham realized that God had a different plan, a different game plan for Graham. And after giving his heart to Jesus Christ, Billy laid down his dreams along with his bat. Quote, As I look back, I see how God's hand guided me. I sense his spirit with me. And most comforting is the knowledge that he will not forsake me and during this last stretch as I am nearing home. Those that follow baseball know that nearing home means rounding third and heading towards home plate. Nearing home. Mr. Graham is home. He is with the Lord. 
But what captures our attention now is that this is a book that he had written in, in the latter years of his life that grappled with, on one hand, the brevity of life, and on the other hand, the immortality of the soul. And how does the temporal and the eternal find some practical meaning to life? What I want to do with you this morning is we're simply going to take chapter 14 now and extrapolate from verses 1 through 14, and I want to draw out three significant needs that we find here in these verses if you're wrestling this morning with the brevity of life. The first comes out of verse 1 through 6. That as we, you and I, as we ponder the brevity of life in relationship to the resurrected body, I want you to note first of all with me the imagery that you and I, we need to consider. One thing you're going to find in the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, is the high use of imagery. And there is imagery found throughout the book of Job. Now he begins in verse 1 with this thought, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Now you say to yourself, at this juncture, well Job has got many days under his belt. So what draws him to the point where he's prone to say, but we are, full, we are few of days? When you and I read the opening chapters to the book of Job, what strikes us is that Job's sons and daughters died simultaneously in something that was unexpected, in a manner which was unprepared, yet God is sovereign over all. Job then is reflecting most likely upon not his life, but upon the suddenness, the brevity of life, where life was simply swept away and all of his family with it. Now when you and I are ministering effectively to people that are in the midst of the grieving process, it's critically important that we understand that there are various ways by which people grieve. They do not grieve all in the same way. There are outward processors, and there are inward processors. And outward processors can't assume that inward processors are, are not grieving or denying reality because they're not expressing themselves outwardly. Because outward and inward carry one similar distinctive. Both are experiencing loss. But the grieving process involves expressing as well as experiencing loss through personality. And personalities differ because God is sovereign and God is creative in the way in which he's created you and me. But not only are the personalities different in the grieving process, but furthermore, there is the whole matter of the suddenness versus the gradualness of the loss of life. The aged person, there is a gradualness to it all. And the, the subsequent generations are, are there to observe it. He or she, that grandpa, great-grandpa, great-grandma, they are rounding third and heading home. But on the other hand, in Job's experience, it's not the gradualness of grief, it's the suddenness of grief. 
that strikes his attention here at this point. And so he expresses outwardly this whole matter. I wonder if Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have experienced grief. Is their understanding of loss simply intellectual and conceptual? Or is there a personal dynamic to it? Because if so, would they have expressed themselves differently in the way in which they argue with Job? You've got to speak tenderly when you're ministering to someone who's hurting. A life principle. Another one that I'd add to in the principles we're developing from the book of Job. The truest end to life is to know that life never ends. The truest end to life is to know that life never ends. That there is an eternity that converges with the temporalness of life. And Job's going to wrestle with this here in these opening verses. Now when you are ministering to someone who's in pain, such as in a hospital, or they're in the grieving process because they're anticipating the final moment of loss, or they are now subsequently experiencing that loss, oftentimes they're going to use what I will call figures of speech or images. Whether it be, say, in the book of Job, or you will see it as well in the book of Revelation, they will use phrases such as like or as. On a scale of 1 to 10, the nurse might ask you in the hospital room, how would you describe your pain? What that person is doing, that gracious nurse is attempting to discern at this point, is where are you at? Now the grieving person is trying to tell you, here's where I'm at. And so often they'll use like or as to be able to express himself or herself. Notice now three significant images that unfold out of verses 1 through 6. The first, verse 2. He, speaking of this person, he comes out like a flower. You're in full bloom. Blossoms everywhere. But then reality and withers. Now we love for our flowers to stay in full bloom. We do what's necessary and we try to figure out ways to keep them going. But in the seasons of life, what we find is that the flower of the spring can oftentimes be withered in the fall, if not beforehand. And so we can't make what is temporal permanent any more than we can make what is permanent temporal. And so now he's saying, well, Eliphaz built it and so far it's, it's like this. I've experienced loss. Multiple brevities. And so, I'd put it this way, figure speech-wise. Humankind is like a flower withers. And right now I'm in the withered stage, season of life. But to put it another way, a second image. You're still in verse 2. He flees like a shadow. Not only the figure of speech, you see, of the withered flower, 
but the figure of speech of the fleeting shadow. You know that there is a reality, but for some reason the reality is, is producing a shadow of itself. He flees like a shadow and continues not. But what strikes me is that even the shadow is dependent upon the sun. Donald Gray Bonhouse understood something about shadows. Connect with me that statement poetically that Job is utilizing in this too with what with the psalmist penned in Psalm 23 about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Both are poetic books, Job and Psalms. Both are utilizing the idea of the shadow to communicate reality. Donald Gray Bonhouse was the senior pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Outstanding expositor. And he used brilliant illustrations to open eyes to biblical truths. Dr. Barnhouse was widowed at a young age. And the death of his wife left him and his six-year-old daughter in the home. The biographer tells us he had real difficulty working through his own grief. But the hardest part was to comfort and explain the death to his daughter. But he later recalled that all of his education, and he had a PhD, and theological training left him at a loss. <coughs> One day, he and his daughter were standing on a busy corner at a downtown intersection in Philadelphia, waiting for the light to change. Suddenly, a very large truck sped by, blocking briefly the sun, frightening the little, the little girl. This is Barnhouse at his best. To comfort her, Dr. Barnhouse picked her up, and in a moment, the wisdom of God broke through and he was able to explain this to his daughter. Honey, when you saw the truck pass, it scared you, didn't it? She nodded her head. But let me ask you, would you rather be struck by the truck or the shadow of the truck? Well, she said, the shadow. And then Dr. Barnhouse went on to explain that when your mommy died, she was only hit by the shadow of death because Jesus was hit by the truck of death. And they say the light came on and she realized her mommy, though dead, was alive. It requires the sun to be present for the shadow to be cast. Metaphorically, as well as literally. And so now Job, as a precursor to what the psalmist would eventually pen, is offering you and offering me now figures of speech. And when you're ministering to those who have experienced the loss of life or loss of 
health or loss of relationship of some sort. Wisdom dictates that you look among, for other things, figures of speech, both similes and metaphors, the as's as well as the likes. It's utilized in the scriptures. He comes out like a flower, withers. What's Job saying? I wish I could make permanent what's temporary. But the bloom's gone. Where there, where's their beauty and the witheredness of it all? He flees like a shadow and continues not. But there's a Dr. Gray, Donald Gray Bonhouse that helps us to understand something about shadows as it relates to realities. And then you read on. You're up to verse 3, and now uh, here is Job, and he's grappling with the supposed counsel of his friends. And do you, do you open your eyes on such a one? Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. What you will find that after each encounter with one of his counselors, he will then enter into what's known as a soliloquy, where he will speak to God in the hearing of his counselors. You had people do that? So they're listening in now to this soliloquy. He did it with Eliphaz, he did it with Bildad, now he does it with Zophar. But the others are there as well. You can almost see Job looking upward. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Question mark. Uh, he understands something about accountabilities, do we? As we've said throughout the book of Job so far, there's a courtroom aspect to it. There's a judicial aspect to it. But you and I know that the judge is also the father. He does not merely relate to us judicially. He relates to us paternally. And so he goes on now at this point, and then with another question of verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of the unclean? And so in his brilliant commentary of a prior century, Edgar Gibson at this point asks, is this an insinuation of original sin? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And then the response of verse 4, there is not one. Now what does that remind you of? I know what you're thinking. Because the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we need someone to enter into no, not one matters. And you and I know who that is. Jesus. Jesus. Job needs Jesus, and you and I need Jesus. But where is Jesus to be found in this 14th chapter? He's coming. Keep your eyes open. But meanwhile, you're on your way into verse 5, and furthermore on into verse 6, because in verse 5, since his days are determined, you see, Job has in common with his three friends is that they have a, fair, 
a very clear understanding of the sovereignty of God. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you've appointed his limits that he cannot pass, and then almost with a sigh in verse 6 says, look away from him. Leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. And now you've got still another figure of speech, another image, the hired hand, the withered flower, the fleeting shadow, the hired hand. And what all this does is to illustrate for you and to illustrate with me this whole matter of how do you go about understanding what will take place when you find that the temporal and the eternal collide. And what he's telling us is that however you view the journey of your life, there is an issue of time in the grieving process. Now, as I've oftentimes said, you're going to have to be able to distinguish in matters of wisdom between what is time-bound, timeless, and timely. Eliminate the time-bound, take the truths which are timeless, and then apply them in a matter that's timely. Do that with your children. Do that with your, your parenting. Do that with your relationships at work. But at the same time, people are asking such questions as, will I ever heal? And then the famous classic question, does time heal? Back to Norman Wright. Where now in this, this chapter of 14, will the sadness ever go away? He writes, this grief, it's a journey. But it feels more like a passage through an arid desert than a lush forest. It's a long exhausting trek through a barren land. Others have traveled this way. Israelites learn to know God through their desert discomfort. And in the midst of emotional despair, you too can experience the living God. F.B. Meyer understood something of that. He was a gifted pastor in London. And at the time in which he passed away, with the service itself, a biographer tells us that there was never a note of defeat, not a hint of tragedy, no suggestion of regret. Instead, on that day in which the service was held, there was this radiant scriptural passage and glorious Easter music and at the conclusion of the funeral service, the vast congregation rose and stood with heads bowed, waiting for the concluding music and perhaps the throbbing dirge of some kind of death march. But instead, instead they were swept into triumphant notes of the Hallelujah Chorus. And then the biographer asks, and why should it be otherwise? For F.B. Meyer, great servant of the Lord, was standing before the living God. And that's the same for us today. We worship not a dead Jesus. We worship a living Jesus. And so now for the Norman Wright to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, this is a journey. 
and you are processing. You're processing. I'm processing. As you know, I've officiated funerals for two family members in less than 12 months, 10 weeks apart. This is a journey that we're on, and it can be a very arid, desert-type experience. But notice the imagery that's involved here. The imagery you see then of the withered flower of, of verse 2. The imagery, furthermore, of the shadow being cast and then fleeting. Also in verse 2. But also the hired hand of verse 6. He doesn't have the same vested interest as the owner. And Job's saying, hey, can't you just treat me like a hired hand? I can leave at the end of the day, go home and enjoy my life. Shades of Ecclesiastes, right? There you have it. Verses 1 through 6, in relation to the resurrected body, this whole matter of the brevity of life. Notice, first of all, the imagery we need to consider. Don't be surprised, then, when a person who's hurting is at a loss for words and then has to use likes and as to be able to find a way to make their way through this, this journey of conversation. Ah, yeah, but now you're on to, aren't you? You're on to the second need. It's found in verse 7. Takes you down, you see, to verse 12. That's second of all, not only have you noticed the imagery we need to consider, but now the hope we need, we need to possess. And I would argue that what you and I need, and what we share in common, is the need for legitimate living hope. Which is what Peter wrote about in First Peter, when he talked about our living hope. And he related it to the living Savior. It is a brilliant first chapter teaching on the whole matter of how you and I practically live out life in relation to the resurrected one. But here's Job. And he's trying to function in a time period in the first, in the time period in which, in which the Genesis account describes itself. And what does he do? There in verse 7. What he demonstrates is what I will now call creational wisdom. What's been needed thus far in the book of Job is conversational wisdom. Where the three counselors were to dispense supposed wisdom to help Job in his journey. What Job will now do is to equip them with what I will call creational wisdom. When you need some time to be able to just get out of the house and go for a walk. Make sure that this is more, much more than a nature walk. Make sure that what you are doing is you are gleaning creational wisdom, where you are connecting creator to creation. This is now what Job does for us in terms of horticulture. Look what emerges now in verse 7. For there is hope for a tree. A tree? Once again, he's using imagery. If it be cut down, that's the illustration of death. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again. The Hebrew word here for sprout again, yahalip, will reappear, same Hebrew word, in Job chapter 14, verse 14, same Hebrew root. Meanwhile, what he's saying thus far is this tree that's been cut down, check out the saplings, 
It's the most astounding thing. It shoots, will not cease. He's giving now his, his supposed counselors reason to pause. It seems as though all is lost, but he finds hope in what's been severed. You ever felt like you had severed hope? You can have hope in the midst of loss. Tristan Bernard, French novelist, lived up until 1947. He and his wife were interned by the Gestapo during World War II. And when arrested, Bernard told his wife, quote, the time of fear is over. Now comes the time of hope. Unquote. You and I function on hope. We are built with eternity in our hearts, so says the writer of Ecclesiastes. So what do you take with this eternal soul of ours, and we're filling it with temporal stuff, and that stuff keeps dying off. And we are trafficking with temporal relationships, and we long for relationships which last. Where do we turn? What do we do? He goes horticultural on us, you see. And he's helping us, as later the writer of Ecclesiastes does, with this whole matter of he's put eternity in our hearts, in our souls. And now you and I, we look around and we're still thinking in terms of botany. Verse 8, and though its root grows old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water, there's still another figure of speech, isn't it? Parents, when you go for walks with children and grandchildren, um, Mr. Singles, when you are walking hand in hand with somebody you love, connect creator and creation. Keep looking for ways to draw out the wisdom of life that's instilled in the creative work of God. Here he is in verse 9, Yet at the scent of water it'll bud, put out branches like a young plant. And now all of a sudden, notice what happens here. Notice not only is there connections to be made when you are developing wisdom, there are also contrasts to be made when developing wisdom. Know what's connected and know what's disconnected. In verse 10 now, he offers the contrast, but a man dies and is laid low. A man breathes his last, where is he? And then still another imagery here, as waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so man lies down, rise not again. Until the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. And you say, wait a second, Job, didn't you just, didn't you just create an imagery of resurrection? And now here you are, hey, don't be surprised in the grieving process of a person in their emotional wording swings the pendulum back and forth, back and forth between a sense of hope and a sense of hopelessness. Where are they at? The question is, where are you at? Are you with them? Don't walk away from them. You've got to allow for that pendulum to swing and allow for them to express themselves. Maybe you've got an outward processor on your hands at this point. And you're inwardly processing what they're outwardly processing. What do you do? C.S. Lewis helps. In his incredible book, Christian Behavior, there's this line, Hope is one of the theological virtues. 
This means that continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism. It's one of the things Christians are meant to do. What he will go on to say is that in this whole matter, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. He understands that the Creator sends the Redeemer. You're ready now then for the third need. And this third need is drawn out of verse 13 and down through verse 17, but I'll only take it up to verse 14 for the sake of time. Because now poetically, once again now, he enters into this way of trying to express and explain this whole issue of the matter of where am I at once I die. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. He's got such a sense of justice here. He needs as an infusion by his three counselors of a sense of grace. Take me out of the courtroom. Bring me home. Think less judicially. Think more relationally. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me, exclamation point, and my do people love and need to be remembered. One of the stories that was told by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love his writings, German theologian, pastor, executed in 45 by the Nazis for his participation in a plot to assassinate Hitler. It comes from his final letter to his fiancée, written just before Christmas of 44. In the midst of the tragedy of life and facing death, he wrote the following to his fiancée, quote, you must not think that I am unhappy. What is happiness and unhappiness? It depends so little on the circumstances. It depends only on that which happens inside a person. What Job needs now is a fresh sense of the joy of the resurrected one. So here comes at you. You've inched your way into verse 14. And now this critical question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Now 400 years before Jesus, Socrates, the philosopher in Greece, drank the poison hemlock, lay down to die, Shall we live again? His friends asked. The dying philosopher could only reply, I hope so, but no man can know. How would you refute Socrates? Job asks, If a man dies, shall he live again? But now the pendulum swings again, 
And notice the renewed sense of certitude, certainty here. All the days of my service, from the Hebrew also carries with the idea, all the days of my battlefield service, warfare, and life is not a playground, it's a battleground. All the days of my service, I would wait. And the Christian understands that in life, waiting is the rule, not the exception. All the days of my warfare service, I would wait till my renewal, or from the Hebrew, he the prata, from the same Hebrew root as found in verse 7. If it be cut down, that would sprout again, sprout again. All the days of my service, I will wait till my renewal or my sprouting again should come. He said, brilliant. Brilliant. He is using horticulture. He is using a means from nature where he understands that wisdom can be extracted from understanding the relationship between the creator and the creation. So now, you grapple with that question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And how would Jesus answer that question? What appears from on the screen now is taken from John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 where Jesus is dealing with, with a Martha as well as a Mary in the background who is grieving her own sense of loss. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever now believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And now the question for the Jobs of this world. Do you believe this? As now you've linked Job 14, 7 and 14 to the resurrected one prior to his resurrection in John chapter 11. And that's why Billy Graham would be able to write in the latter years of his life the crack of the bat, the thrill of rounding bases. I often pictured myself hitting a big league grand slam into the stadium seats, hearing the crowd roar with the thunder as I ran the bases, he wrote. But as I look back, he said in his latter years, I see how God's hand guided me. I sense his spirit with me. Most comforting is the knowledge that he will not forsake me during this last stretch as I'm nearing home as the temporal and the eternal find their convergence point in the empty tomb. Let's stand together.
And so, Father, this preps us for what's coming our way. We've been a congregation over this past week of both scattered as well as gathered. And some are returning from spring break right now on flights or in cars. Gathered in all these services today, though, is the opportunity to look deeply into the wisdom of the wisdom book of Job. Extract the preparations for resurrection, verses 7 and 14, the whole matter of the sprouting, and realizing that no matter where we are as we're rounding the bases, and for some it's simply rounding fish, but others it's rounding food. No matter where we're at, Father, we're headed home. The question is, what will be my home I pray, Lord, that each one in all these services today has put faith and trust in the resurrected one, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord, and be able to answer this question, do you believe this from the lips of Jesus? And say, I do. I put my faith and trust exclusively in you as we make our way home for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.